Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Today's episode is sponsored by AARP. The latest issue of Politico magazine series, The Deciders, takes a look at voters over 50 in Pennsylvania who are being crushed by the cost of health care. Visit politico.com slash the deciders to learn more. Hello, listeners, and welcome to another episode of Politico's Nerdcast. I'm Scott Bland, your host. This week on the show, we'll put some bonkers fundraising numbers into context. Spoiler alert, it was good news for Democrats. We'll talk about what happened, some of the historical context here, and uh, also lay out the the argument that Republicans are making for why maybe this won't matter as much as uh, some people think. Plus, we are going to dive into President Trump's sense of humor and showmanship and how it plays on the midterm campaign roadshow. Uh, One of our White House reporters has been digging into just how and why Trump performs the way he does as he's ramping up all these rallies across the country before the midterm elections. Before we begin, a quick note, Nerdcast will be at Politicon this weekend. It's the Convention for Political Junkies. It's in Los Angeles, October 21st and 22nd. And you can come see us on Saturday as we do a live taping there. You've not truly experienced the Nerdcast until you see Charlie Matessian in person. (laughs) Tickets and more info are available at politicon.com. Also, stay tuned for the end of this episode for a contribution from one of the Nerdcast's biggest fans. And as always, a reminder that we're taping this a little bit before noon Eastern on Thursday, October 18th, so it's all up to date as of then. No members of Congress have been indicted yet today. All right, let's get started. I want to welcome our guests as previously mentioned, we have senior politics editor Charlie Mutesian here as always. Hello, Charlie. Hi, Scott. And uh, our House campaign reporter and FEC filing expert, Elena Schneider, is also here in the studio. Hi, Elena. Hey, thanks for having me back. Thanks so much for coming back from Minnesota for, for the podcast. They finally let me go. <laughs> <laughs> they threatened to, wait to take away my ID, but I got away. All right. So... Elena, let's jump into our first data point. I'm really going to make a lot of friends with Minnesota (laughs) and South Dakota this year. (laughs) Our first data point is the number 92, and that's how many Democratic challengers running for the House outraised Republican incumbents in the last three months. 92 Democrats in in 92 Republican-held House districts. That's according to Federal Election Commission figures that were out this week that were due on Monday. In a typical year, the number of incumbents who get outraised is just a handful. And the number of incumbents who end up having less cash on the in the bank uh, for the last month of the campaign is even more minuscule. Uh, but this year, as, as it has been in so many other uh, ways, is breaking all sorts of campaign finance norms, Elena. Can you can you put that in context for us, just how outside the norm? It, it is? Absolutely. This is insane. <laughs> That's the context. It's insane. Um, so just to run through the numbers just a little more uh, deeply. So as you said, 92 Republican incumbents were outraised 
On top of that, 33 had less cash on hand, which is always sort of the number that um, whoever's getting out raised likes to point to of, you know, okay, we're your out raised, but actually we really have more. This is like the money you have in the bank, money that you have access to that you can use and spend. So normally incumbents still have an edge there. 33 are behind their Democratic opponents in cash on hand. 61 Democrats raised more than a million dollars, and at least half of those people raised more than two million dollars. Again, that's insane. I don't think that there's any, there is not a historical comparison for this moment in time in terms of small dollar fundraising that Democrats have been able to tap into in an extraordinary way. And look, money isn't everything. I think Jeb Bush taught us that. Hillary Clinton has taught us that. John Ossoff taught us that. But I do think that sort of the breadth and width and depth of the amount of money that's come in is a sign of enthusiasm. And it's also, and it gives candidates an ability to get out their message in a way that in other years has been a lot more difficult. And people can decide whether or not they like that message. But at least, at the very least, the problem isn't going to be about budget for these candidates. And that is really key. And I think there, there's an interesting point to be made about the small dollar donations that this is it's not just about the money. This is an example of uh, enthusiasm that matters in, in midterm elections. Right. It typically, you know, it seems like we're going to have a very high turnout election, but turnout is never as high as it is in a presidential year. And uh, this this is a measure of how engaged a lot of Democratic supporters are. And also with regard to that cash on hand figure, you know, we look back at the historical data and there haven't been that many of them, but two thirds of the incumbents in the last decade who have trailed in cash on hand at this point went on to lose. So that's yes. been like a really dire uh, historical sign. Yeah, another historical sign being that back in 2010, which was the Republican wave election, um, that year 18 House Democrats finished the third quarter with less cash on hand than their opponents and 10 went on to lose. So again, it's not a perfect indicator. Obviously, some people are going to be able to survive this, but um, but it's but it gives you just sort of a window into um, into as you say the intensity and the willingness to participate in elections that you may not even be voting in. And I think that that's really worrying, at least to some Republican fundraisers that I've talked to, who say these are people who are now invested in a party, and that makes you more likely to vote and makes you more likely to continue to participate. And that's not something Republican candidates have done as good of a job on because they've been more reliant on sort of these big money uh, mega donors like Sheldon Adelson, sort of the names of the Koch brothers, the names we always hear. And those people can only vote once. And, um, you know, the hundreds of thousands of people who have donated can all vote themselves. Charlie, this is one of many data points that we've been talking about a lot this year, going back into 2017, actually. Um, one of many factors that just objectively look like things lining up for a good Democratic year and potentially a takeover of the House of Representatives. But I want to ask you to argue the other side. You know, What's the path for the GOP holding on to a slim House majority, which is something that a lot of Republicans are saying they can see happening, especially if some things break their way over the next few weeks. I can't believe you just gave me that burning dumpster fire of a question uh, <laughs> <laughs> after these new FEC numbers. No, uh, actually, I mean, there, there is a sort of, well, vaguely plausible argument you can make here about how Republicans sort of salvage the majority or at least don't get blown out of the water. I mean, I happen to be one of those people who think that the House is gone right now. But uh, I think that there's a very good chance that um, Republicans will not suffer the kind of massive losses that we saw in 2010 or in 1994, and I and I see signs that you know of a blown opportunity for Democrats, meaning Democrats with a majority, but not 
by uh, a massive margin. So here, here's how that would work if it remained close, uh, if the Dems just barely won, or if Republicans hung on by the skin of their teeth. I mean, I think the faint outline is uh, something like when you look at the polls, you can see that voters still prefer Republicans in a number of very important subject areas. They trust Republicans more. Um, among them, the economy, national security. Uh, we have an economy that's going you know, you know, pretty well in a lot of places. So you've got that. And historically, that has been pretty good for incumbents when you see that. Uh, I think you can see where the president, you know, once you get outside the suburbs where the president is uh, obviously a toxic presence, I mean, whether it's a Republican district or and especially in a Democratic district, but once you get out of the metropolitan areas into the rural areas and into some of the exurban areas, mostly rural areas, though, where we have lots of uh, congressional seats that are in play, the president is much more popular uh, out there. And so he is not the anchor that he is in other places. And so, I mean, I think when you have all that, when you have the dollars that are being spent by Congressional Leadership Fund, they're almost like the cavalry coming in. I don't know that they can save a lot of incumbents given the numbers that, um, you know, the stunning, remarkable numbers that that, uh, Elena just walked us through. But they have a ton of money. They are spending, uh, just spending and spending and spending uh, on negative ads on Democratic candidates, uh, hanging Nancy Pelosi, who has historically proven to be very successful as a boogeyman in, in Republican ads. So there's lots of Democratic candidates who are getting hammered with her at the moment right now. And so, you know, then you kind of, you know, cross your fingers if you're a Republican candidate, hope that the president doesn't, um, you know, dra- you know, say something that's going to blow you out of the water, some, some new craziness. And the other thing to, to keep in mind is the generic ballot, it, you know, it's back and forth right now. It's a little bit wider than it has been. But, you know, if that generic ballot near, near the end, near Election Day, is, you know, maybe under nine points. Uh, and by generic ballot, I mean the, you know, the typical uh, ballot preference where a voter gets asked, who would you, you know, who's your preference for uh, for Congress? Who would you vote for right now, Democrat or Republican? And if that generic ballot number is under nine, in my mind, other people have different numbers, but I think if it's like under nine or maybe even like under seven, like, you know, maybe maybe Republicans can hold on. You know, I, I don't find it an especially convincing argument, but I do think you can make it plausibly. Elena, you've been digging a little bit in the past few days, and we mentioned you just got back from Minnesota, into like the district by district look at this question. And uh, there are a couple districts in Minnesota that are particularly important uh, in terms of Republicans' hopes to to maybe pull an upset and, and hold on to the House. Right. So there are two districts in Minnesota where uh, if Republicans hold the House, they have to win. It has to start there. Um, there are two rural districts that sort of ancestrally Democratic. Uh, one also currently Democratic. And currently Democratic. <laughs> uh, one is the open seat where Tim Walls uh, left it uh, in southern uh, Minnesota to run for governor. And in northern Minnesota, where Rick Nolan decided to retire as opposed to running for reelection again. And those are both places where Republicans look pretty good. Um, I, th- I would argue maybe Minnesota 8 more so. The uh, Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee just pulled all of their IE spending, so all of their TV ad reservations in the district there. And that's usually a pretty good sign if you follow the money as to where uh, the party actually thinks the likelihood of it flipping. So I think Minnesota 8 is looking uh, pretty tough for Democrats right now. Minnesota 1 is still very much in a dogfight. Um, but sort of one element that I would layer over uh, Charlie's sort of um, really sort of well, you know, sort of detailed how Republicans hold on to this. One more element that I hear constantly from Democrats is that redistricting is a huge part of why this is 
the Democrats may not actually see as big of a, you know, quote unquote wave as as one would imagine, given the first midterm year after Trump was elected. Republicans were able to win in wave elections in 2010. And that not only in congressional races, but also legislative and redrew the maps in a way that made it incredibly difficult for Democrats to make gains. And so the sort of the playing field is a lot smaller than it was in 2010 or in 06 or in 94. There are just fewer opportunities for Democrats to make inroads. And so I think that that's also why there are fewer opportunities for Republicans to make inroads like Minnesota 1 and Minnesota 8, because they've taken over so much of it at this point. Um, But I do think that if Republicans win, it's got to start in these sort of rural blue collar districts. Democratic districts. Flipping them. Flipping them. Exactly. Building up a little bit more of a cushion instead of 23 seats, 25 seats. And then pulling out a bunch of like one or two point wins in some places where Republicans drew the district a few years ago and and that that wall holds and protects them. Well, and I I think that there's still about two dozen districts that are sort of split between suburban and rural areas. So think Ohio 12. uh, Think Illinois 12. I mean, these are places where it's sort of the take Ohio 12 because we've talked about in the past. There was that special election between Daniel Connor and Troy Balderson sort of fades from the Columbus suburbs out into stretches out into Zanesville and into very rural parts of Ohio. That's a place where if Democrats drive up suburban turnout, independents go their way, they can flip a district like that, even though it's pretty red. But if, say, the president has a pretty good couple of weeks, there's not a lot of chaos, as as Charlie described, coming out of the White House, then they could very easily hold on to places like that. So those are the sorts of districts that are really on the knife's edge and could at this point still kind of go either way. One point that I also forgot to mention was the, the business about enthusiasm. Obviously, Democratic enthusiasm, we see all sorts of signs of grassroots energy on the left, uh, and that Democratic enthusiasm is through the roof. But it's also important to note that Republican enthusiasm is pretty high, too. You know, when you, when you look at the polling, it shows you they're they're totally jazzed up. The Republican base is jazzed up. It's just that they're not quite at Democratic levels right now. And I think the gap between them, the Delta is going to be really, really interesting here. But I, I do want to push back a little bit against the redistricting point. I think it's super smart and it applies in some states. But I think it's becoming a total crutch that Democrats rely on. They're like, oh, poor us. We're redistricted out of everywhere. <laughs> You know what? It, you know, that is just a crutch. Like they point to 1994. In 1994, most of those maps were gerrymandered by Democratic legislatures, you know, and Republicans blew through it because of the historical forces that were at play. And if you look at the 2006 wave, you know, it was, you know, more balanced. It wasn't that Democrats had gerrymandered all the legislatures, but, you know, there were, it was a more even mix. Now, I think where this point does come in is after 2010 is where you began to see Republicans then understand the power of controlling so many state houses. And you do see some states where it's going to – Atlanta's point is right on the money where uh, no matter how strong the winds are, they're, they're going to really have a difficult time ousting some of these Republican incumbents. I think the the, the interesting thing about the, the redistricting and the gerrymandering argument to me is that I, I agree, Charlie, that – it is used as a crutch sometimes. I don't. I don't know if I agree with you quite all the way, but I think the thing that's interesting about this, and Elena, you've written about this, is that these maps were drawn for a different conception of the Republican coalition. Right. The, these. This was drawn using the 2011 understanding of who Republican voters were and how solid they were, and Donald Trump blew that up in a lot of places in in 2016, and we're now seeing the suburbs in a lot of places much more in play than they ever were. And rural areas much less in play than they ever were, so it's it's this it's this kind of odd mix. 
Yeah, no, it's a very it's it's very much relying on data and on uh, the way that a state looked 10 years ago. And we're again, we're right at the cusp of a new redistricting year in 2020. And so we're going to see that sort of once again change and readdress sort of these same sorts of things. But I I don't know. I mean, I just I I take Pennsylvania. I mean, that's a place where the maps were drawn in such a way that what was it? Republicans had 15 of the 18 or I don't remember what exactly it was, but bottom line that it was pretty unrepresentative of a state that is a 50 50 state. And North Carolina is the same way. So I think, I think it was 13 out of the 18. OK, so maybe that's slightly better. Mm-hmm. I think that's better. But also, you know, the, if you look at the map 10 years earlier, my, my point is that things change over time in part because parties change. And there was a heavily gerrymandered Pennsylvania map in, you know, from tw- the 2002 to 2012. And oftentimes you see this, you saw it in Pennsylvania, saw it in Georgia in the 90s. A map is drawn under one conception, as Scott mentioned, and things change. New people move in. Right. Uh, parties change. People uh, lash out. Bad candidates run. You know, there's all sorts of variables like that that suddenly change all the equation, particularly, um, you know, in the suburbs, which have, have you know, seen, I think, have been much more fluid than, than some other areas. Elena, really quick before, before we uh, get out of this segment, what are you going to be watching as as the House expert here? You know, what's what's the the data point that you are going to be keeping an eye on to gauge the uh, the direction of the 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 race for the House over the next three weeks as we close in on the election? Uh, that's a great question. I think what I'm going to be watching in particular is where the committees and the and the outside groups are adding and taking away their spending. So this week we saw two movements. So the DCCC, as I mentioned, pulled out of Minnesota 8 and pulled out of Florida 16, uh, where Vern Buchanan is defending his seat. Um, He was sort of seen initially as vulnerable because of some uh, legislative districts underneath him had flipped, um, but they're pulling out of there. And then on the flip side, CLF, Congressional Leadership Fund, the the GOP uh, outside group, is now jumping into, back into, Iowa 1, which is where Rod Blum is trying to uh, desperately hold on to his seat, and it was sort of written off for dead, and now they're suddenly jumping back into it. And then Florida 27, which is a seat that Ileana Ileana Ross Layton had held for uh, decades. This is a Cuban-American Republican. Cuban-American Republican in a very blue district um, that Hillary Clinton won, uh, just ran away with in 2016. But they are now putting in a a, a buy there. Republicans are. Because even though it sort of has Democrat written all over it, um, the woman who's running there is a... a, Hispanic woman who's been on Hispanic TV for a long, long time and is really giving Donna Shalala, who arguably is a uh, pretty old elderly candidate and also not Hispanic herself. She is empirically elderly. I don't think we need to argue the point. She's going to be the second oldest house freshman ever if she wins. Okay, I'm just trying to be... Diplomatic. Good to my elders. Um, so bottom line, that these are places where um, we're sort of written off initially, and now all of a sudden CLF is spending there. So I think that those are always great leading indicators as to where where the map is going and what's competitive and what isn't anymore. All righty. Thank you very much, Elena. I appreciate you coming in to talk us through that. No problem. Uh, Charlie, I know that you're going to be staying put for segment two. Uh, coming up, we're going to be talking about Donald Trump, president, campaigner, insult comic. But first, we're going to break for a brief word from a sponsor. Today's episode is sponsored by AARP. The latest issue of Politico magazine series, The Deciders, takes a look at voters over 50 in Pennsylvania who are being crushed by the cost of health care. It doesn't matter if they are Republican or Democrat. 
They don't see hope for themselves or for future generations and are voting for help. View the latest Politico AARP poll results and read the latest issue of The Deciders at politico.com slash the deciders. Okay, that was Donald Trump's walkout music when he was a character on World Wrestling Entertainment, the old WWE. Which brings us to our next data point, four. Donald Trump has four rallies set for just the next five days. He's really spending a lot of time out on the campaign trail now, trying to boost fellow Republicans heading into the midterm elections. And so we're, we're going to get to the president's penchant for entertainment and theatrics that was on display on reality TV all those years and how it plays into uh, the, the, the character that he's built up in the White House and, and as the, the central protagonist now in the Republican Party, basically, in the story that is the Republican Party. So we have here with us Andrew Restucia, who covers the White House for Politico. Hi, Andrew. Hey, how's it going? It's going pretty well. How about you? Good. All right. So, Andrew, you've you've done something a little different than I think your your normal uh, assignment over the last few weeks. You've been almost forensically analyzing the president's showmanship uh, and and as part of that, his sense of humor, which I think is something people don't think about a lot, but which plays a, a, a pretty important part in in his public his public persona and especially these rallies that he's doing so many of now to try and gin up his fans uh, before the midterms. And, and something that stuck with you, which is the reason we're talking to you today, is that Donald Trump has what you, you might call good comedic timing. What are some examples of that? Talk, talk yeah. us through what you mean. Yeah. And I think that I, I think it's important to start with, I mean, there are many Donald Trumps and there are many Donald Trumps that show up at any given time, right? I mean, talking to people in the White House, he's not known as a sort of funny guy behind the scenes. He's pretty serious. Um, and uh, when he does uh, say things that are funny, they tend to be sort of cutting. Um, and um, you know, like uh, uncharitably, you'd you'd call them a little bit mean spirited. Um, he's been known to sort of cut aides down to size in a funny way, you know, which is mm-hmm. a, sort of a, a bizarre mix of of things, right? Um, but yeah, I think I think the best example of this that we can see with our own eyes is at these rallies. So, like you said, he's he's going to be all over the place over the next couple. Couple days, um, and you know when you write down the words, when you read a transcript of the words that he says, they don't come off as particularly you know funny. But when you see him do them in person, um, you know they they sometimes are. He he sort of he has a way of sort of pausing and using his hands and gesticulating. Don't worry about that baby. I love babies. So I love babies. I hear that baby crying. I like. Um, and waiting for the waiting for waiting a beat for the moment to hit. Actually, I was only kidding. You can get the baby out of here. And 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 the people that are around him, the crowd really goes crazy for this. Right. This is something that the crowd eats up. The, the, this gets to the, the the point of his appeal, I right. think, and like how how he maintains the the fan base that he has. Which obviously we all know. You know, we can all read the polls and see that more people dislike him than like him, and the people who really dislike him outnumber the people who really like him. But there there is this this fan base that's that's there, and this is part of the connection. Yeah, and I think that people are sort of speaking two different languages here. That you know, his supporters see and interpret and uh, the things that he says in a totally different way than than you or I might or um, you know the rest of his critics might I mean you know talking to people for this for 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 this story that I'm working on I spoke to comedians and other people and 
And you know, there's a debate about whether the things that the president says are funny at all, right? Like in any <laughs> way, right? Uh, but but if you talk to people who go to his rallies, I mean, they they really are speaking a different language than everybody else. I mean, they they interpret the things that he says totally differently, and 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 with you know a much more uh, much more humor involved, I would say. Ooh, there was a mosquito. I don't want mosquitoes around me. I don't like mosquitoes. I don't like those mosquitoes. I never did. Okay, speaking of mosquitoes. Hello, Hillary. How are you doing? Charlie, you uh, you were an early uh, Trump rally attendee. Um, Back during the primaries in 2016, original recipe Trump rallies. (laughs) Uji Trump, I would call him. What like what was your impression? Well, I thought he was pretty funny when I saw him on the trail in 2016 in uh, in New Hampshire, and I think I saw him uh, in Iowa too. I saw him a couple times, and and what I remember is that he was much funnier than I expected. I I I thought there was sort of a wry sense of humor, and and he had these funny observations on sort of the uh, the artificiality of the political class and uh, the absurdity of the uh, political process. And so that was really entertaining. And I was surprised and, and didn't expect that. He also kind of reminded me of that, you know, the that older inappropriate uncle you have, uh, who's really funny, but also totally capable of saying the most cringy things. And that, that those were my takeaways from the rallies. But now when I see it, when I watch him, it's, you know, it's still recognizable. He's still a recognizable character. But in my mind, at least, the narcissism and the and the self-aggrandizing and the egomania has caught up to him. And, and to me, it seems like he's only funny to the base, which eats up the Hillary Clinton jokes and the mockery of the enemies and, and opponents. And to me, that's not really humor. He's not he's not drawing on the same reservoir that he once did. I mean, there's almost like a darker side to it. Well, I think and a- Andrew, you you kind of got into this at the beginning, right? His his humor to, to the extent that he is humorous, it's cutting. Exactly. Right? It's about it's in opposition to someone. It's about you said cut, cutting an aide down to size, but cutting cutting anyone down to size. I'm, I'm thinking about like the you know the um, his political enemies at these rallies. A lot of the comments he's made about women who have opposed him right. are viewed as as funny by his fans. You've called women you don't like fat pigs, dogs, slobs, and disgusting animals. Your Twitter account only Rosie several- O'Donnell. Very much not so by others, but it's all about bringing down, not all, it's a lot about bringing down right. enemies. Yeah, I mean, the, he's been really critical of the Me Too movement. You know, at one of his recent rallies, he said something like, I can't, I can't say Pennsylvania is the woman that got away. I have to say person. And like, those are, those are, that's not really a joke, right? I mean, there's no punchline there, really. It's not like a traditional joke setup, but it's the type of thing that get, gets people really going. I mean, one thing that I, that I thought was really fascinating at one of his recent rallies is he does this new impression of Dianne Feinstein, um, also sort of mean-spirited, also very cutting. Did you leak the document? Uh, uh, what? Uh, no, uh, no, I, I didn't leak. Uh, well, wait one minute. Uh, did we? Li- oh, oh, no, no, we didn't. Li- but he, he, he's so observant about everything, right? He's he's able to pick up on these little moments, and he and he's really focused on this moment um, from the uh, hearing with Christine Blasey Ford when Diane Feinstein was being accused, basically, of leaking this private letter, um, and she at one point turns to her staff and says, "Did we leak it?" You know, and the staff says. No, we definitely didn't leak it. And she says, no. And he recreates that moment and, and lampoons her and caricatures her in a really effective way, you know, because it was a, you know, kind of embarrassing moment for Diane Feinstein that she couldn't have just publicly said, we definitely didn't do it, you know? See, here, here's the thing I'm wondering. You just mentioned how observant 
President Trump is in, in in being able to kind of notice the intricacies of a scene like that and recreate it. But how self-aware is he given that? I mean, this is not a guy who makes fun of it. Actually, I, I shouldn't say that. He, he Especially in recent days, he has made fun of himself a few more times, which I thought was notable. But he's not someone prone to, no. to self-reflection. Yeah, he is not self-deprecating. He's not self-reflective. Um, you know, even people who are his defenders in the White House acknowledge that. Um, he almost never turns uh, the microscope on himself. Um, and, you know, that is, you know, in his defense, that is something that <laughs> that his supporters love, right? The fact that he is kind of an unapologetic defender of himself and everyone around and and, and, and his ideology is his, his sort of way of, of thinking. Um, but yeah, you're right. I mean, he's not he's not particularly self-reflective. There are, are a couple examples um, that go against uh, that statement. I mean, he's sort of made fun of himself for for not drinking and said, "Can you imagine if I if I had been drinking, how horrible it would, would it be?" But then those are really <laughs> exceptions to the rule. I mean, he doesn't do this very often. And and well, and even in that instance, he's holding himself up in comparison to to someone else, right? right. It's not like it's it is a self-deprecating moment, but but only. Only in a vacuum, right? It's like the 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 whole context of that is he was comparing. He, he was basically saying that the guy he nominated at the Supreme Court had a problem with alcohol, right? Uh, at, the, at that yeah, point, or and, used to have a problem. And with he alcohol. usually only makes those self-deprecating comments in safe spaces, uh, which is a, a, a phrase that he would personally hate that I used in reference to him. But you know, whether it's at the White House or at a rally, occasionally at a rally, he'll make some sort of joke about you know, like. You know, if you go early vote, you don't have to listen to me anymore. Like little things like that. But it's 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 um, uh, when he's only when he's surrounded by people who adore him. You know, you're not seeing those self-deprecating comments come up very often in you know one-on-one back and forth with journalists, for example. And Char- Charlie, this is something that you've you've talked about a lot in in uh, past shows. It kind of it, it gets to the insecurity issues um, here in terms of uh, wh- where this is all coming from. Yeah, I mean, I, I was sort of laughing myself as you were. You mentioned the the president's not particularly self reflective. I mean, we all know he's not self reflective <laughs> right. at all. The guy doesn't read. He doesn't think much. Like in in my mind, I as I envision his brain, it's like uh, what are the the seagulls in in uh, Finding Nemo? You know, like you watch it a million times. <laughs> I've watched it a million times with my mine, kid. Mine, 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 and like that. That's what's going on in his head in in a lot of ways. I think, uh, and so uh, sometimes. Th- because of that, he probably uh, he isn't able to harness it for um, for for productive uses. You know, I, I think he early Trump was not as mean uh, in what he would focus on. He would, he was talented, and this is in some ways his political superpower. Think about what he was able to do to his opponents. He zeroed in right away and made fun in a way that connected with the Republican primary audience. The fact that. Jeb Bush didn't have energy or that Marco Rubio was little, you know, and he just nailed them one after another. And they loved the fact that he was willing to puncture all these Republican sacred cows. Now, to me, it's moved into a sort of a darker realm uh, where he harnesses the energy for something other than entertainment purposes. And that that's a little. And I, and I think you're right. And I think that's partly because you know, being president, he feels uh, under attack from all from all sides in a way that he didn't even during the campaign. And of course, he was under attack during the campaign as well. But now he really feels like I think in a lot of ways the the walls are closing in on him, and that brings out this this side of him that is uh, in which has always been there, frankly. You know, at times, but it comes out a lot more. This this sort of mean spirited, cutting, uh, aggressive. You know, and 
you know, it's 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 even difficult to describe what he's doing as 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 a sense of humor, right? Because it it really is a political attack. It is a political attack, and it's I, I'm I'm almost thinking of the and you know I'm I'm not an expert in in this area, but I from from what I've read about the way you know when when scientists are trying to get like a laser up to higher intensity, they bounce it back and forth between some mirrors that are sitting next to it and it gets brighter and brighter, and it's like he he and his base are kind of just like playing playing off each other in a way that's like amplifying this type of humor that really only plays to them. And this is a guy who was in show business for, I mean, as we, you know, we're playing the clips, we're talking about it here. He was in show business for a lot of years. There are a lot more people who used to find him funny than I think find him funny now. Everybody's always blaming me for everything. <laughs> but I, I think like so many other things at this moment, when you think someone or something is funny including the president, has a lot to do with where your politics are at this point, not just because your perception of them is skewed by the political views, but because their, in this case, President Trump's targeting of, of this humor is is very finely tuned to the people who already like him. I think that you're right. And, and there are, I mean, there are legitimate moments, even in rallies now, that are just sort of like, Chuckle to yourself. Objectively funny. funny. Objectively funny. Empirically that funny. He does, Andrew Restucia says I think, it's funny. <laughs> so at least. But, you know, talking to people for this story, Democrats in particular, I mean, tribalism has become such a huge part of like our politics right now. And, and you know, people just refuse to see it. Right. And people aren't. And, and a lot of people aren't who, who are critics of, of Trump aren't sitting down and actually watching what he what he does. Right. So talking to comedians, talking to people who've written WHCA or White House Correspondents Association speeches. I mean, people won't even really get into the conversation. Right. Like that's how uh, divided people are right now. You said you talked to comedians and uh, and other people who, you know, experts in humor. On the flip side, right, I, I think probably a lot of Trump fans don't find a lot of professional comedians very funny right now uh, either, right? Like, I, I think a lot of them are tuning out the late night shows that, that have uh, can lampoon Trump right. on every occasion. You know, and Trump himself doesn't find that stuff very funny and takes no, it very he personally, not. right? He does he doesn't, not think it's funny. <laughs> he doesn't personally, he's not able to make fun of himself. And in fact, you know, a, a really sort of formative moment for him was the, I think, 2011 or 12 White House Correspondents Association mm-hmm. dinner um, in which Seth Meyers and Barack Obama ruthlessly uh, mocked him. Donald Trump has been saying that he will run for president as a Republican, which is surprising since I just assumed he was running as a joke. And he came away from that um, feeling, you know, sort of more uh, determined than ever to prove himself in the political sphere. And, you know, this is very much an issue of debate, but like people have said that that even was one of the many factors that that drove him to run for president in the first place. So, um, yeah, we can thank uh, Seth Meyers and Barack Obama maybe for for what we have right now. And now now here we are. It was. Wow. I was there and it was, it was, everybody was cringing. It was so bad. I mean, it was just a devastating indictment of Trump. It was. All right. Well, Andrew, thank you very much for uh, coming in through to uh, through the studio here to talk us through that story that you've been working on. It's uh, a little a little off your your normal yeah. beaten path, but it's it's kind of interesting. Yeah. Thanks, and yeah. thanks for having me. All right, and Charlie, thank you for being here as always. Thank you, Scott. Is this the part where I get all I've I get my money back. All right, that was a great show this week. 
As promised, before we say goodbye, we are going to turn things over briefly to one Nerdcast superfan to take us through the credits. And this week we've got Laura Hubka of Iowa's First District. Charlie, tell us about Iowa's First District. Well, it would uh, border on Minnesota, southern Minnesota, and that would be represented by Rod Blum of uh, Northeast Iowa. Very strong. Laura, take it away. Nerdcast is produced by Michaela Rodriguez, with help from Adrian Hurst. Dave Shaw is the executive producer, and their illustrator is Bill Cookman. If you like Nerdcast, and you're listening on Apple Podcasts, rate the show and leave a review. It helps new listeners find the show. Thank you, Laura. Listeners, we found Laura because she emailed in to say she was a fan. If you are a fan of the Nerdcast who wants to read the credits, please let us know. Shoot an email to nerdcast at politico.com. Once again, thank you so much for listening. We'll talk to you again next week. Save me, President Jesus, I'm born.